don't want to be in the car anymore. I want to go home. I don't want to go to Wally World. Clark, under the circumstances, I wouldn't mind if we just went home. In retrospect, it seems like a pretty bad idea driving out. It's been one disaster after another. Yeah, it's been a real drag, Dad. Maybe we can try it some other time. Wally World's overrated anyway. What do you think? I think you're all fucked in the head. We're ten hours from the fucking fun park and you want to bail out. Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm going to have fun and you're going to have fun. We're all going to have so much fucking fun we'll need plastic surgery to remove our goddamn smiles. You'll be whistling symphony doodah out of your assholes. <laughs> I gotta be crazy. I'm on a pilgrimage to see a moose. Praise Marty Moose. Holy shit. Dad, you wanna ask for something? Don't touch. What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rock Strikes 10 and cnjradio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels, or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. All right, it is now that time. We are going to finally, finally finish up our 1983 Super spectacular retrospective, and I'm here to deliver you what I consider to be the top 10 albums from 1983. This is the Big Ten right here. This has been such a great musical journey for me for the most part, getting to really dive deep into my first real conscious year of being an active fan of music. I know I kind of alluded to that being 82 as well. But 83 is really, really where it kicked off for me. So this is my first year of having a decent amount of nostalgia play a part, honestly, in a lot of the rankings of this. But giving everything a re-listen, giving stuff a listen for the first time, it's been very rewarding and a lot of fun. Let's get to a couple of negatives, though, before I kick off, because I'm going to glom about these records. I'm going to be Professor Positive, Dr. Stats guy, for the entirety of this countdown, let's get into a couple of negatives before we get to the good stuff. So I try to do this. I think I failed to do this a couple of times, but I do want to give out one award, anti-award, if you will, for the worst album of 1983. Now, there's a big asterisk attached to this. This is merely the worst album that I listened to all the way through. 
There's a lot of albums that are actually worse than this that I gave up on like halfway through, but I don't even bother to mention them. So the worst album that I listened to top to bottom is Rod Stewart's Body Wishes. There you have it. <laughs> so I didn't make a short list of the ones that are actually worse than that, but I'm officially going to go ahead and just give it to Rod the Mod because that's a bad record. I even like Tonight I'm Yours. I think Tonight I'm Yours is a fun record, and I have a feeling Camouflage is actually going to do okay next year. But this record, woof, man, Body Wishes, this album blows, man. There were some other artists that actually disappointed me a lot more, but that one scored the worst. So, all right. And the other negative, we'll get to it real quick, and then I'll get into this countdown, because I know I probably have a few extra ears on this show, so I'm going to try not to bore you. This entire 1983 retrospective was delayed quite a few weeks because I got COVID for the first time ever since COVID kicked off in 2020. I got it for the first time. And so that knocked me out for a couple of weeks. So that's my big explanation. That's why the show did not exist basically for an entire month recently. But I tried to come back hard again, give you this huge retrospective. So hopefully I was able to make it up to you for lost times. There you have it. There's my explanation. I hope my voice has maintained some sort of consistency as I've gone through this whole retrospective. So there you go. There's my personal thing. Let's get into the actual music. I've teased it long enough. Coming in at number 10. I did kind of go back and forth with this one between this and number 11. I moved it back and forth so many times. But as I mentioned why Iron Maiden got the number 11 slot I think the one that's kind of the dud on this album is a better song than the dud on Peace of Mind. So that's my opinion. But coming at number 10 here is the debut solo album by a musical veteran at this point, Ronnie James Dio and his solo band Dio. Their debut album, Holy Diver, came out on May of 1983. Self-produced by the man, the icon, the late, great Ronnie James Dio. Also recorded at Legendary Sound City Studios, if you didn't know that. The other big thing of note on here is, of course, Ronnie being fresh out of Sabbath, literally had just quit Sabbath earlier that year, basically at the top of 83 or maybe at the end of 82, due to that stupid argument and fallout they had on the mix of the Live Evil album. But hey, man, we got all this great solo Dio music, so not the worst thing that ever happened, that's for sure. The other big thing of note, in that kind of parallel that people will draw in comparison to him and Ozzy just because of their association with Black Sabbath, Ozzy's got this killer young hotshot guitarist that's given Eddie Van Halen a run for his money and Randy Rhodes. And then by this time, unfortunately, Randy has passed. And in a similar move, a 21-year-old hotshot guitarist by the name of Vivian Campbell is drafted into the Dio solo band. And it's just that last thing that they needed to really kick off the Holy Diver record. This is a classic. It's essential. Of course it is. It's in my top 10. My rationale was, depending on where it lands in the countdown, is I'm going to use a particular song, depending on where it lands. So as an opener, I was like, I'm going to go with either opener, whether it's side A or side B. I'm going to go with this one right here because I feel like more people have heard Stand Up and Shout. And of course, Stand Up and Shout, one of the great album openers ever. But I almost equally like the B-side opener. So on principle for Rock Strikes 10, let's go a little deep. So kicking off the show here today from Holy Diver, this is Dio with Straight Through the Heart.
Kicking off the show here today and kicking off our top 10 in the top 83 albums from 1983 Countdown. That was Dio, Straight Through the Heart, from the album Holy Dive. Let's give some credit out there to Vinnie Appice and Jimmy Bain. What a great rhythm section they were. And definitely holding it down throughout that entire record. Talked about Vivian, talked about Ronnie. we got to mention Jimmy and Vinny. They sound excellent on these records. More Dio to come. A band right there, Dio. I am sure, I am positive that Sir Chris Riley has probably seen Dio multiple times at Donington to boot. Which, yeah, that guy. That fucking guy. Okay. Get to work. Uh, Yeah, coming in at number nine, another band that Chris Riley has seen live multiple times, if I'm not mistaken. He might have even seen this band at Donington because they're having their peak commercial year in 1983 with all visual and audio mediums. That includes MTV, that includes radio, that includes the record-buying public, and even this guy right here finally took notice of this little old band from Texas in 1983. Yes, an album that we did a whole dissection and regrooving of here on Rock Strikes 10 earlier this year for the big 40th anniversary of Eliminator. Yeah, we did that back in March, because that's when the album came out, March of 83, produced by their Colonel Tom Parker, Bill Hamm. Yeah, I said it. I think I have probably glommed about Eliminator quite a bit throughout the history of Rock Strikes 10. So where can I go with this? We do definitely, and this has been on my brain constantly, we're finally going to fill that promise that we made years ago where myself and Nola are going to rank the entirety of the ZZ Top albums. Big rock and rank special. We are going to do it, I promise. I'm sure this album, Eliminator, will do quite well. And, woof, man, I'll tell you what, I thought of a whole bunch of different ways to represent Eliminator, honestly, because I had a feeling it was going to make the top ten. There was a point where it fell out when I was moving stuff around, and then it wound up getting back in there. And I'm glad, because this really is one of those albums that really defines 1983 in a nutshell. And if I haven't said it out loud here on the show, I, I like TV dinners. I have no problem with it. I like the song, I like the video. But I'll expound on that later on the Rock and Rank specials. Let's go with this one right here. This is the second song on this particular episode, coming at number nine on the countdown here. Let's go with track number two. Honestly, if I had to really say what my favorite, favorite song is on this album, it's this one. It never fails to get a rise out of me. I always turn it up. It does get played decently and occasionally on rock radio, classic rock radio, Especially around these parts. I don't know how it is where y'all live, but we do play a lot of this album quite a bit on our classic rock radio stations. But even though this is an obvious-ish kind of song from Eliminator, it's still the best off the album in my opinion. So here you go. Turn it up because it's got me under pressure.
coming in at number nine of the top 83 albums from 1983 Countdown. That was Little Old Band from Texas, one of our faves in this household. ZZ Top, Got Me Under Pressure. If you didn't know this, by the way, about that song, the last handful of tours that ZZ Top did with Dusty Hill, which that still stings so much. Not having Dusty on this planet, so sad. But the last handful of tours they did with Old Dust, Dusty actually wound up being the lead singer on the live version of this for quite a few tours. So if you haven't seen that footage, go check it out. Him doing Got Me Under Pressure sounds real good. Uh, but yes, Eliminator, no question. I did mention at the top of the show the Dio album, Holy Diver, was recorded at Sound City. Not to be outdone, ZZ Top's Eliminator was recorded at the legendary Arden Studios there in Tennessee. And this next one right here, recorded also in a very famous studio, Electric Lady Studios in New York. Our number eight album is the sophomore that's way better than the debut album album by Billy Idol. And the album Rebel Yell came out in November of 1983. And much like ZZ Top, they've been kicking around quite a bit, as Billy had been. And then all of a sudden in 1983, they find themselves being massive stars due to MTV and radio play. Yes, Rebel Yell, definitely an undeniable album produced by Keith Forsey and, of course, featured lead guitar here by the great Steve Stevens. It's just one of those albums, man. It's I'm always going to love it. And, yeah, good deep tracks on here, like Blue Highway, which I consider to be a deep track. I don't think that was a single. Do Not Stand in the Shadows. I thought about actually playing that to represent this album. But much like Eliminator, I'm going to go with a single but not as big as the two bigs off of the album. Of course, the big one being the title track and Eyes Without a Face. But this one right here has always been my favorite, as much as those other songs are so great. But this is the personal fave. I do champion the the lesser-loved singles. So, yeah, this one just has just a great vibe. It's so cool. It's just one of those great 2 o'clock in the morning songs. So let's go with this to represent the great Rebel Yell this is Billy Idol with Flesh for Fantasy. To midnight, while you're feeling alright. 
Forever in my hearts, this time of the 80s, the early 80s into the mid 80s, there are two dudes that define cool for me. My two Elvises. There's a sitcom in there somewhere. My two Elvises are Diamond David Lee Roth and fucking Billy Idol. To this day, when these kind of songs come on, like Flesh or Fantasy, I'm still doing the jumping fist in the air or the fist of the forward motion with that double-jointed kind of move. Every time. I still do it. That's how fucking cool I think those guys are. Billy definitely defined cool in 1983. He is having a moment. And, of course, this will carry him through 84. Rebel Yell, just a monster record. And he's the man. Yeah, still love Billy. Still in good shape. Still has that voice. Still playing shows. And much like our buddy Mark Striegel, Freaking DJing on Sirius XM every week. So his show is a lot of fun. Go listen to it if you can. Sorry, that's not a shot at international listeners. But 
if you're in America or in North America and you don't have Sirius, you're doing it wrong. All right, speaking of cool people as well, coming in at number seven right here, not produced in any kind of famous studio, but that doesn't hurt it. Not at all. Obviously, coming in here at number seven, it's a band that definitely dialed it back on the productivity front in 1983, which means they only put out one record as opposed to putting out two in the previous year because I definitely was like, oh, my God. And they definitely repped themselves twice on my countdown of 1982, but only one entry this year. So you only get to listen to them once. That's your loss unless you just have the catalog and you're that cool. But this band put out their fourth studio album in May of 1983. This album was produced by Bufferin and Overend. You know those guys? That's Mata Hoople's rhythm section. <laughs> there you go. That's a great fact. I love that. I never knew that for the longest time. I only found that out just a few years ago. And I'm a fan of this band. Obviously, I am. But yes, the fourth studio album by the great Hanoi Rocks. The album's called Back to Mystery City. This was kind of the last studio album that was part of the initial run before they signed to CBS and went major. Because they do these four studio albums and they make the live album and then they move on to what should have been the next chapter in their career. But unfortunately, that wasn't to be, as it's been well documented. And that's not the reason I love this band. I do not champion this band because they're a what-if, they're a cool band alike, because my heroes like them. No, this music stands on its own. Some of my favorite rock albums of all time are these Hanoi Rocks records. They're that fucking good. I'll put them up there with the original Alice Cooper Group albums, with some of the Stones albums, with the Ramones, with Sabbath, Zeppelin. Hanoi is that fucking good. This record will prove that. That's my opinion. The first time I heard what I found out to be the original version of this song that I'm going to play to represent this album, the first time I heard it was apparently the original version of it, which was recorded as a jokey kind of novelty calypso song. The first time I heard it was in one of my all-time favorite band home videos, which was Skid Row's Roadkill video. They're having a little weirdo party backstage, and they got this song cranked up, and they're playing a prank on a roadie or somebody or some security guy that's passed out. So a highlight of the home video, those kind of tour shenanigans. So the first time I was like, what is this? And I saw at the very end of the home video, I noticed a credit to the Hanoi Rocks guys because I knew their names at that point. So I'm like, oh, I got to get a hold of this song. And it took me another couple of years to realize there were two versions of this particular song, one being the Calypso one that I heard in Roadkill. And the other one was the one that wound up on this album here, Back to Mystery City. So here is the first proper full-length song after the Strange Boys intro to the album. This is Malibu Beach Nightmare. Turn it up.
Yeah, my guys. You're my guys. Yes. Hanoi Rocks right there. The album is Back to Mystery City. That was the great Malibu Beach Nightmare. Love it. This album also has one of the great Hanoi Rock songs of all time. Obviously, I love this whole album, but that one that should have been a hit, Until I Get You, is also on here. Great, great, great stuff. Okay, coming in at number six. By the way, this was the other half of... BJ from Rock and or Roll, published author BJ Cramp. This was the other half of his top two albums of 1983. So there was Iron Maiden, Peace of Mind, and this one right here. I could definitely see this album topping a lot of Rock Guys 1983 list. Makes total sense. I'm surprised it's not even in my top five or top three, but that's just how it goes here on the countdown. This one right here basically opened up the year for Rock and Roll in 1983 came out in January. This album was produced by Mutt Lang. I had mentioned during parts of this countdown that there were a couple of big albums that would unseat Thriller on the album's chart. Unfortunately, this was one of the also-rans under Thriller. It only peaked at number two on the album charts, but of course it's number one in our hearts. That would be the third album and mega monster breakthrough for our Hall of Fame guys, Def Leppard. And the album, of course, Pyromania, the album where it really all came together for them. Unfortunately, at the expense of losing Pete Willis. But I gotta say, Phil Collin, great replacement. I like Phil. Steve Clark has always been my guy, though. Steve just writes some of the all-time best riffs ever, ever, ever. So there's enough of the puzzle in here for, like I call, old guy Def Leppard fans to still enjoy. This is the last album that they would ever enjoy by Def Leppard because they all hate hysteria. More on that later. I I will not get on a tear for that. By the way, you're just hearing thunder in the background. 
we got bad weather tonight. But if I do not finish this top 10 tonight, I will lose my fucking mind. I've already been hit with the COVID. Yeah, I'm going to play victim here. I fucking had COVID. I had to put getting into 1993 on hold. I only have a month and a week to go through 1993. So I'm a little on edge right now. And I got bad weather and I got fucking roadsters out there. You know, people on the freeway doing 100 and I can hear your goddamn bike and I hope you crash and die. And there's fucking football people driving up and down the street. A little on edge. But, okay, sidebar canceled. Getting back to the show here. Was that like instant karma of me talking shit about old dudes? Okay. Yes, no, I love Pyromania. This absolutely, much like almost a lot of stuff here in the top 10, my absolute gateway to this band. I never heard anything by him prior to hearing the song that I'm about to play. Oh, Joey's going to play a single from Pyromania. Why doesn't he go deep? By the way, the personal favorite song on Pyromania is without a doubt Too Late for Love. I love that song. That's one of my pick up guitar and play it songs. I will play that a lot. More often than not, when I pick up a guitar, I'm going to play that opening riff. Love, Too Late for Love. But I'm going with this one to make it really the definitive 1983 retrospective for me. Like I said, this is the song that made me a fan. And yeah, Photograph, Rock of Ages, great songs. I almost never need to hear them again. I don't mind hearing them in the context of listening to this album top to bottom or if I go pay a ticket, which I still do, to see them live. But it has always been about this song for me, and it always will be. So to represent the album Pyromania, this is Def Leppard and the one that brought me in, Fulham.
All right, yes. Def Leppard from Pyromania, our number six album of 1983, and that was f f f foolin So, yeah, I remember seeing that video probably on Radio 1990 on the USA Network. Became a fan, been a fan ever since. By the way, if you didn't know this, this is fun to bring up. This is very timely, actually. So the woman wearing the blindfold playing the harp at the very beginning of the Fullin video, that's Perry Lister. That's Billy Idol's girlfriend at the time. I think he married her later on. But yes, some some nice tie-in right there. And from what I understand, I think I saw like a pop-up video of this or something. So Billy Idol was actually on the set of Fullin when they were filming it because he wanted to keep an eye on his lady because I, I guess he didn't trust her around the Def Leppard boys. Maybe they had a rep at that point. Who knows? But yeah, it just... The dogs can smell their own, right? Okay, but yes, Love Foolin'. The other one of my super-duper favorite songs on Pyromania is Stage Fright. Love Stage Fright. Anybody ever notice how ACDC, Rock Rock Till You Drop, is? As much as High and Dry, Saturday Night, is an ACDC song, Rock Rock Till You Drop always makes me think of ACDC, and that's a good thing. One last fun fact about Pyromania. Did you know that all the keyboards on the album were played by Thomas Dolby? I would just assume that Mutt Lang had played like all the keyboards or something like that, or maybe like Rick Savage or something, but no, Thomas Dolby played all the keyboards on the album. So if you hear keyboards, it's that guy, the guy that did She Blinded Me With Science and all the music from Howard the Duck. Uh, he played keyboards on some of the Foreigner songs. That's him on Waiting for a Girl Like You. He just had this patch in his keyboard that people really wanted to use on their records, and he got a lot of work out of it. He even played on an album that I'm very sad did not make my countdown this year, which is the Houdini record. He even played on that. All right. Well, Thomas Dolby reference right here in the middle of the countdown. We are getting to the top five right now. So we are halfway through the countdown. And before we get to the top five, yes, I'm going to tease this top five for just a few more minutes. Actually, I'm not going to do the teasing. I'm bringing in my brother, my best friend, the C of CNJ Radio, the guy who bought me an import copy of the CD of Hanoi Rocks, Back to Mystery City, I believe is a Christmas gift one year, one of the first gifts he ever got me. I still remember that, Chris. Yeah, Chris is going to come in here and he's going to lay it down just like he did on our previous countdown. So here is professional horror movie expert Chris Cat from creepycatalog.com with his top 10 favorite movies from 1983. Take it away, Chris. Thank you, Joey, and welcome to everyone listening to my list of the best movies released in 1983. Well, I say the best, but what I really mean is a list of my favorite movies of the year. Because this list, for me, was not very easy to compile, because once I started looking at a rundown of all of the movies released in 1983, I started to realize that there are quite a lot of popular movies from the year that I just haven't seen, or that I hadn't seen in such a long time that I didn't really feel comfortable putting them on a list if I couldn't articulate why they belong on that list. So since I want this to be my genuine feelings on the subject, and not just me talking about movies that everyone else might be talking about, I looked through a list of all the movies of the year, and I picked out the ones that I had an instant positive reaction to without really thinking about it too hard. I think it worked out pretty well, and it does make this a very unique list of the best movies of 1983, if I do say so myself. 
So, starting with my 10th favorite movie of 1983, I present to you Scalps. Scalps is a not very good supernatural horror movie from the low-budget auteur Fred Olin Ray. Nostalgia is probably a big reason why I consider it to be one of my favorite movies of 1983. My dad had the VHS of Scalps ever since I can remember, so I saw it a bunch of times at an age where I was very impressionable. The movie is about a group of college students who go on a field trip to dig up a Native American burial ground, and of course, a spirit rises up and kills them all. It's violent, and it has some imagery that creeped me out when I was a kid, and I still enjoy it very much to this very day. It's definitely one of my favorite comfort movies, and I still have my dad's VHS copy of it, and it still works. I still watch it sometimes. I did buy it not too long ago because of my ongoing obsession with buying boutique Blu-rays, and it is autographed by director and writer Fred Olin Ray, so I think that is pretty cool. Next up at number 9 is Trading Places. Trading Places is a movie that I know I saw when I was young, but I didn't really think much about it at the time or when I was growing up. It wasn't until much later in life that I really started to enjoy it, and it really became one of my favorites. If you don't know, it's a comedy classic starring Dan Aykroyd, who plays a rich guy, and Eddie Murphy, who plays a beggar and a hustler. Two rich white guys decide they want to have what I guess you could call a social experiment, where they frame Dan Aykroyd's character for a crime, and they cut him off from his money, and his job, and his house, and they grant Eddie Murphy's character all of that money, and job, and house. It's a great comedy with two of the best to ever do it, and the Karate Man scene, if you know, you know, it will be forever etched in my brain in the best way possible. Yeah. Now, I do like to pretend that sometimes I am a good podcaster, and I know how to make these great transitions into the next subject, but I don't really know how to transition from Trading Places to this next movie, my number eight, because it is the exact opposite of a feel-good comedy. At number eight on my list, my eighth favorite movie of 1983 is the Austrian psychological home invasion horror movie, Angst. I saw Angst for the first time just a few years ago after watching an interview with director Gaspar Noé, where he cites it as one of his favorite films and one of his biggest influences. If you know Gaspar Noé, then you know that his films can be quite disturbing. He made Irreversible, and if you know that movie, you know that it is a lot to handle. So I expected angst to be disturbing, and well, it is disturbing. And it's one of those films that I think is great, but that I would rarely, almost never, recommend anyone watch. It's one of those movies where you kind of have to get to know someone, and they have to get to know you before you thrust this movie upon them. Angst is about a disturbed man, a serial killer, who is released from prison, and we follow him as he almost immediately goes back to his killing ways. It's a thing where it's psychologically motivated because he can't help himself doing these things, but they're so horrible, and it takes you along with this journey when he invades this house and does these terrible things. He's a vile person doing vile things, and you're along for the ride. It's one of those kind of movies. And in some ways, it's kind of like William Lustig's Maniac from 1980, if you've ever seen that. But it takes more of a art house style approach to it, I would say, as opposed to more of an exploitation style. So, yeah, it's a lot, and it's not one that I watch terribly often, but I was very affected by it when I did see it not too long ago for the first time. So, yeah, it is one of my favorite movies of 1983. 
Up next at number seven is another movie that I saw for the first time just this year that came out in 1983. Came out in Hong Kong in 1983, actually. This is, at number seven, the movie Red Spell Spells Red. This is a Hong Kong horror movie about a documentary film crew who carelessly unleash an evil ancient spirit. The crew is staying at a remote village in the jungle when they realize that the spirit has followed them there and it is killing people in some very outlandish ways. The story sometimes feels incidental though because the real excitement in Red Spell Spells Red is all about the wild black magic stuff that's happening all around them. People do reference things like Evil Dead and Cannibal Holocaust as influences on this movie, and I can definitely see it. It is a very Hong Kong movie, like you know that the influence comes from the Hong Kong way of storytelling, and it's a Category 3 movie, which, if you know what that means, you know how extreme some of those can get, and it is pretty extreme in some ways, but just building up to the final scene, it's a scene where the main female star is being exercised. She's having this evil spirit exercised from her body, and she's on this water wheel, and there are scorpions. There's a lot of scorpions in this movie, real scorpions that are all over the place, including all over people, it's pretty wild to watch. If just weird, extreme, magical, supernatural horror is your thing, maybe check out Red Spell Spells Red. I saw it for the first time this year when it was released, again, on Blu-ray, and so the popularity of it has risen a bit, so it's probably a little bit more easy to find than it used to be, because I had never heard of it up until this point. But yes, Red Spell Spells Red, number seven on my list. With my number six pick, we're going back to movies that aren't quite as obscure, my number six favorite movie of 1983 is David Cronenberg's Videodrome. David Cronenberg is great. I mean, that's the whole sentence. He's just a great filmmaker. I enjoy all of his movies. Videodrome isn't necessarily my absolute favorite of his, but even a lesser Cronenberg movie is still a super good movie. Videodrome is a strange movie about the owner of a TV station who's looking for something edgy. He already does some extreme programming and the media and the public kind of look down on him for it, but he's looking for something to go even further. And one night he comes across a pirate TV program that looks like it's showing snuff films. From there, he begins to investigate. He wants to find out who is making this and how he can get it, and he wants to put it on his program. And he actually, I think he starts to pirate it himself, or tries to anyway. And of course, from there, his life gets real weird because it's David Cronenberg. It's psychological, it's metaphorical, it's topical, and of course, it's body horror. It's Videodrome, it's number six, and it's great. Sticking with horror, and sticking with one of my favorite directors, although not the same one, a different one, is my fifth pick for the best movies of 1983. This is Christine. Out of all the movies on this list, Christine is probably the one that I haven't seen in the longest time. I remember enjoying it a lot, and I do remember certain scenes from it, but I definitely need to revisit it soon. As most of you probably know, Christine is a movie about a car that kills people. The car, Christine, also affects the personality of its owner. My memories of watching Christine at this point consist mostly of moments rather than plot lines, though. I remember the scene where Christine fixes itself after getting banged up. I remember the alleyway where Christine runs someone down, chases someone and runs them down. And, of course, I remember the music because this is a John Carpenter movie. John Carpenter is one of my absolute favorite directors ever, and there are very few of his films that wouldn't make a top ten list for any year that they came out. So, of course, Christine is on this one. It's number five on my list. 
For number four, we're back to comedy with one of my favorite comedies ever of any year. This is National Lampoon's Vacation. I think watching Vacation so many times as a kid really helped. It probably even helped shape my sense of humor. I saw it so many times as a kid. I also watched European Vacation a lot when I was young, but Vacation, just Vacation, eventually won the spot as the better movie in my mind. Vacation is about a family going on a vacation to an amusement park called Wally World, and they get into some seriously wacky hijinks along the way. I don't even want to talk about the jokes or story elements necessarily, because if you've never seen it, you should definitely watch it unspoiled. I'll just say that the finale, when they finally reach their destination, is still some of the funniest stuff that I've ever seen in a movie. But speaking of wacky hijinks and vacation, sort of, in a way, my number three favorite movie released in 1983 is Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp is a very cheesy slasher movie, even by the standards of the 1980s. Its setting is derivative, of course, of like Friday the 13th, and The Burning, and Madman, and like a hundred other campground slasher movies. And it's really kind of light on story, at least until the end, which there's a lot of story at the end and other things. But it is so charmingly corny that I love Sleepaway Camp. Also, Felissa Rose is a horror icon, and this was her first movie. Felissa plays a teenager named Angela who goes to a summer camp with her cousin Ricky. Angela was involved in a horrible accident when she was younger, and now she doesn't speak. Angela is bullied at the camp, and at the same time, people at the camp start to die. It's a whodunit style of slasher in a lot of ways, because <laughs> the big reveal at the end is something you'll never forget. And I just love the dialogue. It has a lot of fun kills, and it definitely grew on me over the years. I wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of Sleepaway Camp growing up, or even as a teenager. It took a while for me to rewatch it and revisit it and to really appreciate what it was, and now I love it. It's my number three favorite movie of 1983. Now I have one more horror movie that I need to talk about from 1983. This is what I consider to be probably the best animal attack movie ever made. I would have to think about that some more, but this is one of the very few. It's on the short list of animal attack movies that pops into my brain anytime I think of the best ever. That number two on my list of my favorite movies of 1983 is Cujo. I love Cujo, but it's another one of those movies that I don't necessarily watch too often because, one, it's incredibly sad, but it's so sad because it's so well made. Cujo is based on the Stephen King book, which I have read, but I saw the movie first when I was young. Having seen the movie before the book might be part of the reason why I enjoy the movie so much. The story is about a dog, a St. Bernard, who gets rabies and traps a mother and her son in a hot, broken-down car. The mother is played by the incomparable Dee Wallace, and the son is played by Danny Pintaro, who, at the time, and probably still now, I know him best from Who's the Boss. So he's this little kid that I see weekly that on a show that I really like, and he's dying in a hot car because there's a rabid dog trying to eat him. It's fantastic. And really, the movie is a great example of a simple premise done in a single location, and I just really love that sort of thing. Everyone involved, including the dog, is a sympathetic character, and you want them all to be okay. But they really aren't going to be okay, and that tension builds and builds as the movie goes on. I believe Cujo is generally well-liked, but I still think it's quite underrated. 
And now for my number one movie of 1983. If you know me, as Joey knows me, he probably knows what movie is on this list just by process of elimination that this movie had to be on the list because I love this entire franchise and pretty much everything in the franchise. My number one favorite movie, the best movie of 1983 is Return of the Jedi. Now I will say that this is not my favorite Star Wars movie. It's probably not even in my top three, maybe. I'd have to think about that one too. But it is a Star Wars movie, and it is super fun. My earliest movie memory, like the earliest memory that I have of watching a movie anywhere ever, is the original Star Wars. Now, I wasn't alive when it came out. I didn't see it in the theater or anything, but I did watch it on VHS and TV a bunch of times, as I did with all of the original three Star Wars. But Return of the Jedi, since it was released in 1983, it was the closest to still being new when I was old enough to start learning to read. As I record this, I can look over on my bookshelf right now, and I see two children's books, a storybook and a picture book of Return of the Jedi that I've had since I was a little kid. My name is scrawled in one of them, and obviously my own handwriting from when I was probably like in first or second grade, I want to say. And even as an adult, I still do love Return of the Jedi. I don't have anything negative to say about Return of the Jedi, but I do want to make it clear that I am basing this on the original version of Return of the Jedi, from 1983. The re-edited special edition with a particular scene added that, or changed anyway, that I really don't care for would, it might affect the placement on this list, but as of its original form, Return of the Jedi, in my opinion, is the best movie of 1983. But that does it for my list of my favorite movies of 1983. I hope you enjoyed it. And Joey, I hope you enjoyed it as well, of course. And as I wrap up, I do want to say if any of these movies that you might not have heard about, which will probably be some of the horror movies, if any of those intrigued you, you can find me writing about horror movies on creepycatalog.com. And you can check out The Last Theater, which is my personal space for talking about horror movies, where Joey often also joins me to talk about our love of horror. But before I go away, I do want to respond to Joey from the last time I did this for the 1973 uh, marathon of Rock Strikes 10 episodes, that yes, Joey, The Mac, and Robin Hood would very likely be on my 1973 top 20, but they couldn't quite crack the top 10 but this is 1983. We are in 1983 as we speak. So, Joey, I'm going to ask you again, what is your favorite movie of 1983? Well, Chris, I got to say, not much on the action front as far as any shock value. If I'm being honest with myself, I would say that we match our number one movie from 1983, which would be Return of the Jedi would say a very close second sometimes the first but a very close second is one from your list also and that would be trading places of course if you've noticed any of the intros that come in at the beginning of these album countdowns you'll know what the rest of them are like those two movies but i gotta say i will bring these up because they weren't on your list and we matched quite a few movies uh, on your top 10 in that sense jedi trading places vacation sleepaway camp uh, some of the ones that i definitely would want to bring up some of these are from intros already but in my top 10 to 20 from 83 i would definitely put in 
uh, Suburbia, which if anyone out there, if you're a music guy, but also love movies and want a good music movie and you haven't seen Suburbia, the original from 1983, go watch that. It's Penelope Spheris' directorial debut. It's following a bunch of punk rock bands and it's very lightly scripted. So I think it just has plot points and I think it's all improvised. None of the people in there are really that much in the way of actors in the classical Shakespearean sense. So Suburbia is a really cool fly on the wall kind of sign of the times, 1983 punk rock scene in California. Speaking of gritty shit, Bad Boys, not that Bad Boys. The first movie called Bad Boys from 1983, the thing that Sean Penn followed up Fast Times with. I guess he got really sick of being called Spicoli in the first year of that. Then he went and did this like really gritty, raw-ass prison film. I say it's a prison movie, but it's basically like a detention center for older teenagers and stuff. But it's basically like jail or prison. But some crazy weird shit goes down, but I recommend it. You probably will only watch it once, but I'd recommend it as a film. Rick Rosenthal directed that, by the way. Uh, Chris knows who that is. And we've talked about him on Last Theater. Uh, Also, of course, Scarface. Pardon my cribs, but I do like Scarface, and I think it uh, would definitely be in my top 20 of 83. Uh, War Games. I've always thought War Games was a fun movie, so that one goes in there. Uh, The one that Chris is going to get mad at himself for not including, and I realize I put him way under the gun for this, uh, but The Dead Zone. If I know him well enough, that probably goes in his top 20 at the very least. Dead Zone, Christopher Walken, based on a Stephen King. Can't go wrong. I don't want to spoil anything about The Dead Zone. If you've never seen the film, go watch it. And one of my favorite favorites, definitely my top five of 83, is Risky Business, which I used a clip of that on one of the intros as well. Uh, my, my joke offhand coming out of your segment, Chris, was what? No Jaws 3D? But yes, we all know that's a terrible film. But I would put that in the fun category. Other fun movies, I would definitely say DC Cab. Mr. Mom, of course, with the great freaking Michael Keaton. And Easy Money with the great Ronnie Dangerfield and equally great Joe Pesci. Strange Brew, of course. Okay, I'm done. I'm going to stop talking about movies now. Let's finally get to this top five, damn it. You've been waiting long enough, and I'm going to reward you with five great albums from 1983. So here we go. Take it away, other Joey. Okay, moving on here. We're finally going to get into the top five. Here's a record that I know for sure that Chris is a fan of. I know he definitely owns this album, and he was my concert buddy for this band quite a bit. The majority of the shows I've seen from this band, I definitely attended pretty much all of them with Chris. So good timing right here on my part. So coming in at number five is this record right here that as of this week is celebrating its 40th anniversary. On this week, I'm recording this top 10 is the 40th anniversary, old moment, the 40th anniversary of Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue. Yes, much like Rebel Yell, another massively heralded sophomore album. I love Too Fast for Love and Shout at the Devil equally. They're so different, though, aren't they? But I love them. Shout at the Devil, in a pinch, is my favorite Motley Crue record, as it's probably a lot of people's favorite Motley Crue record. Let's be real about it. This album was produced by the great Tom Werman, which... Since Tom Werman's producing it, that means that he thought during the recording sessions that 10 Seconds to Love was the weakest song on the album. You know how we know this? Because it's the second to last song on the actual album. That's how you know with a Tom Werman record. What did, what did Pete call it? He calls it he called it the turkey track. But I gotta say, 
I like 10 Seconds to Love. To me, the turkey track on here, if I had to pick one, is Knock 'em Dead Kid. Never been a huge fan of that song. And I think 10 Seconds, they're, they're kind of similar songs, honestly, but I like 10 Seconds better. Maybe because I've seen it live. Maybe that's it. But other than that, Shout the Devil, damn near perfect for sure. And yeah, some of this entry being so high on the countdown is nostalgia, but it's definitely a definitive hard rock album for 1983. Uh, the time where Motley Crue could actually also be perceived as heavy metal. Yes, there was a time when Motley Crue was a heavy metal band. It's during here, right here at Shout the Devil for this one record. And you could make that argument, and I have. But yes, this album is, it's the peak of satanic panic. I mean, it's like riding that image like a mother. And it's got that feel every time. You still put on the headphones and you hear that intro. You hear the end, the beginning thing. And you look at the album cover and you see all the pentagrams and all that stuff. There's pentagrams in the video. They're dressed like fucking weirdos from Road Warrior. And it's it's got that sense of danger. If you are younger than me and a lot of my contemporaries here, if you're like in your 20s or younger, and that's awesome. I'm glad you're listening to this show. But if you're living 80s through Stranger Things, which I love Stranger Things, if you're living that satanic panic through there, it's hard to fathom that music was perceived as such a dangerous thing for this type of image that was so cartoony when you look at it now. But it seemed to be a real thing. And like I said, I felt a sense of danger. I was not supposed to be listening to this album as a kid. So that really, really brought it up for me and a lot of people. That's another reason why I love Ghost so much. When I heard the very first Ghost album, I got the same feel I got that I did listening to Shout the Devil. So there's a big explanation there. But yes, love Shout the Devil. Clearly I do. It's number five here on the countdown. And since I've been playing a handful of singles on this episode, let's go with my favorite deep cut right here. This is the overall favorite deep cut. And I know the band likes this because I've heard him play it a handful of times over the years. So this is a really fun up-tempo toe tapper right here. Here is the Motley Boys, Tommy, Nikki, Vince, and Mick with Red Hot.
Yeah, I know. It's also weird for me that you're not hearing too young to fall in love like right now to follow up red hot. It just seems wrong, doesn't it? I apologize because I want to hear it too, but let's try to move on. But yes, that was the number five album of 1983. According to me, shout out the devil by Motley Crue. And coming in at number four is an album. I was talking about some famous studios. I don't know anything about this studio, but apparently they've got a decent list of clients over the decades. This was recorded at Ridge Farm Studios in Rusper, England. I never knew that. I thought this was actually recorded at the place that it was mixed, but it was not. Fun fact, this album was mixed by John Bon Jovi's uncle, Tony Bon Jovi, from the Power Station in New York. The studio's name is the Power Station, not the band. The band named themselves after the Power Station studio. But I digress. Tony Bon Jovi did the mix on this album, and man, to me, this is a top... 10 mix of all time this album sounds so damn good it's one of those just get an original pressing of this on vinyl because you can find them out and about still there's a lot of copies of it out there millions to be exact but yeah this one right here the third solo album by if i could quote motley crew actually since we just played them and we just talked about satanic panic the public enemy number one of the satanic panic movement Sir John Michael Osborne, better known as Ozzy Osborne, Bark at the Moon. Yes, this album rules. I talked about it decently on the Odds and Ends a handful of episodes ago. We played some B-sides off of it, which was nice. But yes, this album is so good. I've only come to love it more over the years. I did not have this album as a kid because I was not allowed to own it, much like Shout the Devil but obviously, once I got my hands on both of those records, it was off to the races. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the air, but this is the perfect place to do it, even if I have told this story before. I don't remember which came first, but let's go with this first part right here. The first time I saw the album cover, I saw it in a record store, and it was one of those record stores that's like the size of the entire world. This place was huge. They probably sold electronics as well, but they sold every format of music. And I remember seeing this album cover just plastered on this wall that went from the floor to the ceiling, and it seemed like it was 50 feet tall. I'm not sure exactly how tall it was, but I was four. So this is why I think it was bigger than anything I've ever seen in my life. And seeing Ozzy made up like that as a werewolf monster guy or the Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing, seeing him like that, scared the shit out of me and it was around the same time that i saw the speak of the devil cover as well which was blood and gore coming out of his mouth that when i look at it now it just looks like raisins which is what it probably is but this cover scared the shit out of me and i feel like what happened was we went home and then speaking of radio 1990 earlier i put on radio 1990 at some point during this time and it's in the middle of the bark at the moon video and the only scene I can remember is seeing the monster chase Ozzy down that corridor with the pipes and stuff like that, the boiler room. So I saw that chase, and I realized that he probably got got and lost the chase. And I had nightmares about that for a long time. So what is it about that? It scares the shit out of us. Chris could probably break this down. He's the horror expert, but it scared the shit out of me. But I was fascinated by it, and fast forward about another three, four years after that, and I become a major fucking Ozzy fan. 
So yeah, he scared me to death, but I love the guy. Isn't that always the way? Uh, but yes, Bark of the Moon right here. Like I said, the mix on this is excellent. Tony Bongiovi did a hell of a job. Main producer of the album, by the way, let's give credit. Max Norman, one of the great metal producers of all time. I love the way Max Norman records sound. Go look him up. Yes, we got Ozzy here with his third overall lineup. <laughs> He's averaging a lineup a record. Jakey e. Lee coming in here, as far as on record goes, replacing the great Randy Rhodes. Obviously, for years, I thought that Carmine Apiece played drums in this album because he's in the video. But no, the drums were actually played by Tommy Aldridge, which is nice to see. Tommy's actually playing on a Nazi record after doing those tours with the Blizzard of Oz touring band. And then Bob Daisley, who clearly, because he's credited on this album, along with Jake Lee, you know that Jake and Bob probably wrote the majority of the lyrics and music on here. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way to Ozzy. I mean that in a disparaging way to Sharon. I love Ozzy, and I know he does write and arrange stuff, but he's not a true auteur like Prince, like David Lee Roth would say. Some of us needed other people to work with, and I feel like that is the case with all of Ozzy's stuff. But that all being said, Bark of the Moon is an essential album. If I'm being honest, I feel like this album holds up very decently with those two Randy Rhodes albums. I know that could be sacrilege to some people, I've never done the actual real breakdown and really ranked the Ozzy catalog. I know I need to do that at some point. But to me, I think this album is just as essential, let's say, as those first two solo albums. You can't go wrong with anything off of any of those records. Also, Missed Opportunity, I Thought So Tired got the shaft. So Tired is a beautiful song, but it's probably a little too beautiful now, isn't it, for the Ozzy fans, let's be honest. So it's a shame that wasn't a crossover single. And obviously radio and MTV were probably a little too afraid of it and they didn't want to touch it. But So Tired should have been a breakout single from this album. Bark at the Moon, one of the great metal anthems of all time. Who doesn't love listening to that song? Who still doesn't get a charge out of that? I still get a charge out of it for sure. Nightmare memories and all. But this one actually makes me think of Z-Rock a lot. Because obviously years after the fact and after this album, I was listening to Z-Rock. And this was a favorite of theirs. And it just became a favorite of mine for that reason. And it fucking smokes. If you are any of my European friends and you have this on vinyl, then this was the kickoff track from the record before the title track. That's weird to me. But this was your kickoff track. It was our closing track on the A-side. This one, it's a definitive Ozzy song for me. And I'm still mad that I've never heard this song live ever. No excuse for that. But here is the Ozman with Rock and Roll Rebel. Turn it up.
Coming in at number four here, the top ten albums of 83 and the overall top 83 albums of 1983 countdown. That was Ozzy Osbourne, the Bark at the Moon album, and that was Rock and Roll Rebel. What a great song. Once again, stupid, I've never heard that live. I've seen Ozzy a lot. Why does he never play that song? Why has he never really leaned on it? Did he play it on that tour? I don't know. I should look that up. Okay, this is going to seem like a weird follow-up, but you got to understand... And I'm not apologizing for this either. Everything in this top 10, top 20 for me, definitely law. And I said this to Sir Chris Riley over the chat a few days ago. This is the hardest countdown I've ever had to rank. And it feels wrong to put anything over anything. But that all being said, following Ozzy up with this act might turn a few heads. And I don't mean it to. But once again, you got to understand, this is me waking up to music I, I don't apologize for this entry, by the way, but I'm just telling you what my journey is here in case you're upset about this pick in any weird way. But I don't understand how you don't like this record. To me, this is a perfect album, and I mean that. This was one of my first faves. I was buying a handful of the 45s at this point. I, I was a weird kid in the sense that I guess just because of budgeting, maybe, because we were like middle class. But I get the 45s, and it took a while for me to get some of these full albums, but I feel like if you had enough singles, you almost had the full album. 
But that all being said, I was big on the 45s off of this record. This is a monster album. This band right here, third time's a charm for them. This is their third studio album. Came out in September of 83. It's self-produced. The story behind this album is so wild. If you've never seen their behind the music, it's really one of the only like real drama-based sections of their behind the music because the best compliment you can give a band like this is they have kind of a boring behind the music because it's an hour of Huey's a really nice guy. Signs every autograph. Yes, Huey Lewis in the news right here. My number three pick for 83 and the album Sports. Patrick Bateman, imitations aside, I'm going to tell you how much I love this record. Yes, some of my first memories. All the way through the entire order of single releases off of this album, I Want a New Drug, The Heart of Rock and Roll, If This Is It. This is a perfect pop rock album. There's almost probably no better that ever came out that speaks to the working man. I mean, really, I've often called Huey Lewis a working class hero. I truly believe him to be that. Yes, John Lennon is the top poobah working class hero, but Huey Lewis is definitely one of the all-time working class heroes. Huey's just a fun-loving guy who loves touring with his boys. The News is a pretty damn good band. They make music, they play shows, they go around the world, and they play everywhere at this point where there's electricity because everybody wants to see them. And yeah, should I go on? I mean, you know how great sports is. Everybody, you all know this, right? Am I trying to convert people here? I don't know. But I got to say, if it's been 40 years since you heard sports, go revel in how great it is, just top to bottom. Even the deep cuts are great. Great album. So what to do, right? I'm going with this one right here. This has always been my favorite song off of sports, and that should be saying something. I found this out probably around 20 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago or so, probably when one of the reissues of this was coming out, that this song was written by one of the all-time great songwriting teams, Nicky Chen and Mike Chapman. They wrote some of the best songs ever, some of the catchiest songs ever, and it makes total sense that they wrote this song. That being said, the rest of the album is completely all original by the band, with the exception of the Hank Williams cover at the very end, but you, you get what I'm saying. It's a very organic record. But to the surprise of no one, this catchy-ass song is my favorite song on sports. So to represent sports, this is Huey Lewis in the News with Heart and Soul.
just in case you've never done this before, and if you haven't, then by law, you gotta rewind it about halfway through Heart and Soul and do this, whether it's on your headphones or especially if you're listening to this somehow in a home stereo or you're in the car. When it gets to that section with the breakdown, the hand claps, and that great riff, you need to turn the stereo up really, really loud. That is absolutely one of the best breakdowns in musical history, and it sounds so good on loudspeakers. If you could pull it off, do that for sure. But yes, that was Heart and Soul by Huey Lewis and the News off of Sports, my third favorite album from 1983. I do this a lot on my countdowns over these years. I will say the line is probably at number three that at any point that either one of the top three albums on this countdown could be my favorite album of the whole year. So let's just go with that. But I did put them in order as of basically today. This is my opinion today. So I'm just going to finish it while I still have this particular opinion. And so I can just move on to 1993. Okay, coming in at number two, this album right here was produced by Stuart Epps. Which is fitting, because this band first broke in the UK, even despite the fact that this band is from Long Island. I was just about to say, this is one of my gateway bands into rock, but you could make an argument that most of the bands on this whole countdown, especially like the top 10, is a gateway band to me becoming a lifelong music fan. Yes, this band is very important to me, and I'm going to throw down some really hot music opinions on this band as we get into this track right here. But coming in at number two is fittingly the sophomore album by Twisted Sister. Yes, I am an SMF for life. And yes, You Can't Stop Rock and Roll is that great of a record. It is a perfect hard rock heavy metal album. One of the best sounding heavy metal albums of all time. It has got one of the most powerful sounding rhythm sections recorded ever. It's just got this great boom to it. And I am enough of a fan, but I am of the opinion that I truly believe that legitimately, if Atlantic Records had gotten behind this band a lot earlier in their career, as opposed to really pushing them when Stay Hungry came out, I am absolutely sure that by the time Twisted Sister got to We're Not Gonna Take It, that We're Not Gonna Take It should have legitimately been their sixth hit single. Because they should have at least had five huge songs on rock radio by that point in their career. First album, I'll Never Grow Up Now, and Bad Boys of Rock and Roll definitely should have been big hits. And off of this record, should have been the title track, The Kids Are Back, and the song I'm going to play here in just a second. You know what? Actually, let's just play it right now. I have talked a lot on this episode, and I'm just anxious to get back into the music. So, once again, here is the mighty Twisted Sister with the should have been huge, huge hit right here. And it did well in England, but it should have done big over in America. So yes, here is Twisted Sister with... I am, I'm me.
coming in at number two on the top 83 albums from 1983 countdown that was twisted sister and their great album you can't stop rock and roll and that was i am i'm me hope you enjoyed that and i gotta do a little psa here this is gonna sound really snobby but i'm telling you this is an absolute truth okay i understand and i'm a user as well but do not i repeat do not go listen to this album on spotify and i'll tell you why you really do just need to buy it well first of all yes of course buy your music be an owner but especially as far as this album is concerned it is mastered so terribly on spotify only i believe the kids are back and the title track are the only things that are actually remastered for decent sound everything else sounds really quiet i actually did do the spotify listen and i was shocked and appalled at how horribly this album was mixed i was just going on about how great it sounded so don't have spotify be your first listen to this album please if you can just get it on any format vinyl cassette cd anything's going to sound better make sure you're playing it on a home stereo or in the car stereo that's just the way it has to be with this album otherwise you're not going to get the real experience as you would with most records but with this album especially i was going on about how great it sounded promise me that you'll do the right thing by this record and by me okay this album, this one that comes in at number one right here, you can listen to on any format. It sounds great because it's a very successful album. Actually, it was a number one album. And if you've been paying attention throughout the entirety here of 1983, you probably have a good guess that this would have wound up topping my 1983 albums countdown list. I did a whole episode in tribute to it earlier this year for my birthday. This album actually came out two days prior to my birthday in 83. On March 11th of 1983, it was recorded at Pasha Studios on Pasha Records by Pasha Puba Spencer Proffer. It is one of the few albums that went number one during the big thriller run by Michael Jackson. Technically, this album outseated The Police as the number one album in the country at one point for one glorious week. Have I given you enough hints? Okay. As of today, the number one album of 1983 for me, my personal opinion, is Metal Health by Quiet Riot. Yes, I love Metal Health that much that it tops this list on a very strong year as it concerns the album itself in 1983. It's one of my first albums I ever owned, and it's still one of my favorite albums of all time. So you could say this is nostalgia, but I gotta tell you, I still play this album on a very, very consistent basis. So why wouldn't it be my number one? Along with anything you hear, especially in this top 20, I play very consistently, always top to bottom. Just love it. Anything else you want me to say about this record, go back and listen to the episode I did on it this last March, and I'll expound a lot about mental health. Otherwise, I just feel like I'm being redundant. If you're a friend of the show, you've heard it already. So you know how I feel. On principle, this is just one of those moments where the record-buying public got it right. As stated, it was a number one album. It's a Diamond Award winner now at this point. Sold over 10 million worldwide. I think that's super cool. Yeah, I like it when my favorite bands become successful. It's a good thing. It's good for them. Sadly, yes, the ride wouldn't last that long. And I'm very, very curious, as a little side note here, very curious to see where Condition Critical ends up in the 1984 albums list. But until then, let's enjoy and revel 
in the banner year that 1983 was for Quiet Riot as we play a song from my favorite album of 1983 as of this recording. And if you're upset about this decision, then it doesn't really matter what I play to represent the album because you're going to be upset no matter what. So I'm playing this one for me. If you happen to love it too, let's crank it up as loud as we can. From Metal Health, this is Quiet Riot with Let's Get Crazy.
closing off the show here today and closing off our super spectacular retrospective for 1983 and topping my top 83 albums from 1983 countdown that was quiet riot with let's get crazy from metal health the top album the big bad five guys double cheeseburger with hot sauce and cajun fries yes i love it a couple of things about that song actually you know a song is going to rule when the first three things you hear is an insanely good guitar riff a man screaming at the top of his lungs and a gong hit that's fucking great if you ask me and last thing on that song one of the things i've always noticed if you haven't let me know if i just schooled you a little bit because i rarely get a chance to do that if you're familiar with this album in any way there's a guitar solo track that precedes it called battle axe by carlos cavazzo and if you're familiar with that you'll know that some of that solo was actually replicated in the solo for let's get crazy so yeah next time you listen to it if you didn't know that pay close attention to the notes being played and you will hear a little echo there of battle axe right in the middle of the solo of let's get crazy all right so i've said this a lot but i hope you've enjoyed this big old deep dive through 1983 i know i have at the same time as much as i've loved it i am happy to be done with it for now and moving on to 1993 off the top of my head, it's an open year, so I'm very curious as to what a super spectacular retrospective of 1993 is going to sound like. I know I was in junior high at the time, music had changed a lot, pop culture had changed a lot, and we turned the world into a tabloid, so it should be an interesting run. Until I get to those episodes, I'll be doing some nice old school themes, kind of take it easy here, but at the same time, know that I am definitely going to be working hard on a 1993 list. Having COVID and all during this part of trying to get these 83 episodes out uh, really put the kibosh on me staying on schedule. So I have a month and change to get through all of 1993. So it's going to be hellish, but I think I can pull it off. So that's what's going on. Also, if you're cool enough to stay tuned through the plugs here at the end, if you do buy a shirt, you will get a free episode show theme request. So please do that. So yeah. Further enticement, in case I haven't said that in a while. Buy a shirt. I'll send it to you, and you get a show theme. And Nola will mention all the rest of the details here coming up. So, let's get to it. Until the next episode, stay tuned for my better half, Nola, with the plugs, and followed by the best damn outro song in all the podcasting business. Take it away, Nola. We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cats Ruby and Ripley a treat. We are on Twitter at RockStrikes10, and the direct email is RockStrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have RockStrikes10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high-quality, soft-as-heck, next-level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message for more details or to order. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going all the way back to episode number one. 
While you're on cnjradio.com, check out some of these other quality shows. The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. And the I Am Vinyl Podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. We also highly recommend that you check out our good friend Mark Striegel, who can now be heard exclusively on Sirius XM as part of Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation. Last, but certainly not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun. Game show is brought to you by Christ. I can't find it. The hell with it.